Like when people say, I have a soul or my soul, my question to them would be, well, what exactly is this soul? And who are you that's possessing it? Today we talk with Acharya Das. Acharya is a respected teacher of Vedic and yogic philosophy, meditation, and kirtan, and a practitioner of the transcendental science of bhakti yoga, the process by which a person can come to know and love the Supreme Person. Acharya Das has taught yoga wisdom to appreciative audiences for over 40 years. He has an uncommonly deep understanding of yoga philosophy and practice, and conveys that message in a clear and simple way. Acharya Das, welcome to Methods. Thank you very much, Jory. So we were talking earlier and I said the the Methods podcast kind of acts like as a brief introduction to a wide variety of different spiritual practices and faith traditions. So that said, many of our listeners may not know you or be familiar with some of the terms that you may use in relation to like Vedic philosophy. Um, so just tell our listeners and also myself a little bit about yourself and try to translate some terms as you go, if you feel necessary. Yeah, sure. So um, I, I grew up in New Zealand. I was actually raised as a um, Roman Catholic, um, began asking many questions that went unanswered mm-hmm. or not answered um, in a way that I felt was deeply meaningful. Um, which led me to begin to question and look around. Um, I became interested in in yoga um, at a quite early age. I was about 14 and began trying to uh, adopt some of the practices associated with what was called uh, Ashtanga Yoga, which is a kind of like more mystical approach to the search for the answer to the big questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What's it all about? Mm-hmm. And so the quest for um, self-realization and God-realization sort of began heading in that direction. I was communicating with uh, a number of, of people in India. Um, I ended up leaving New Zealand uh, and traveling on to India when I was 19, oh, wow. quite young age. And um, I uh, lived as a monk there in India for an, a number of years. Um, and then after that to uh, the Philippines, and I was based in Southeast Asia for about 35 years. Um, where I was engaged both in my own study and practice and sharing with others, um, you know, the processes uh, of meditation and the spiritual understanding that I had acquired um, by virtue of, of the grace of my spiritual teachers and the ancient uh, Vedic teachings. The... Teachings and things are very, if if properly understood, are very pragmatic. 
and uh, very um, they they really em embrace and direct individuals towards a understanding that has more to do with the eternal nature of the soul itself, if I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. And they recognize that all the different faith traditions actually um, attempt to, to direct us towards what is inherently part of our eternal spiritual nature. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like that's where the 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 focus is, and they have um, different ways of appreciating higher truth, um, different ways of of looking at things. They don't they feel that um, it's possible to um, have individuals in their own spiritual development may develop a certain type of understanding or have a certain type of experience and that is that is valid and real um and they are very if i can say accommodating you know towards those kind of things so you see people that come from that vedic sort of background um they have a pretty they got their arms wide open in terms mm -hmm. of dealing with others and not being very, I guess the word may be dogmatic or, or you know, closed-minded and just trying to push one particular type of understanding or appreciation. Mm -hmm. So diversity oh, kind of is inherent yeah. in the tradition. Yeah. So I mean, uh, they may not completely agree with every point, but they understand, uh, you know, from their perspective where you're coming from and, and what you are, you know, trying to impart or whatever. And it's like, wow, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know if you know this, but you are the furthest south and the furthest east of any guest uh, I've had so far on the podcast, um, not only geographically, but spiritually. So you said regarding yoga, and in the West, at least where I'm from, when someone says yoga, uh, it typically means something different. It typically means spandex, uh, foam mats, and difficult physical positions, getting very sweaty. Um, I've done it a few times. I'm not great at it. So how does that differ from, from what you mean by yoga? And are there different kinds and how do you differentiate them? Yeah, there are, there are different. Um, I, I, I'm going to just use a term for yoga paths. Um, the performance of the bodily postures and everything actually made up a very, very tiny part of one yoga system known as the Ashtanga yoga system or process, um, which is being described as the, this word Ashta uh, and Anga, it means like eight limbs, the eight limbs of yoga. Mm -hmm. And the first two had to do with the adoption of moral codes and things to that we should live by and adopt that make it so that our journey will be easier. Mm -hmm. 
by not engaging in things that are actually destructive or harmful or create wrong types of thinking. Then the third was called asana, which is the, what everybody refers to, asanas, they call them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, it was for the purpose of um, bodily strength, but making it so a person could sit comfortably for very long periods of, of time in contemplative meditation. Then the fourth was pranayama, which is um, systems of, of breath regulation and control that was done for purifying the body internally, but more especially for bringing the mind into a controlled state. Mm-hmm. Then there was, and, and I'll, maybe I'll just touch on, and you tell me if I'm, I'm running away with things here or whatever. Um, in, in, in all of the, the yoga systems, there is a very clear understanding and appreciation that we are eternal spiritual beings. The body that we occupy is not our identity. And just as we have a gross physical covering, we also have a subtle covering or subtle body Mm -hmm. that's primarily constituted by the mind. The mind was seen as something that we should be gaining some mastery over. We should be determining what its contents is, um, and we should be utilizing it for um, for good, mm-hmm. uh, our, our good and for the good of others. So um, when we talk about pranayama, it was for the purpose of helping to bring the mind into a more controlled and focused state. Mm -hmm. Um, The mind was considered to be equally, potentially the greatest of enemies or the greatest of friends, Mm -hmm. depending Mm -hmm. on what state it's in and how much of a grip of you it has got. When, When we're in control of our mind, it is considered then potentially a great friend because it can become... A, a powerful and wonderful tool to be used in our spiritual development and uh, connection with God. So after pranayama, then there was what was called um, uh, pratyahara. Pratyahara was the withdrawal of the senses from the sensual objects of this world and, and, and trying to come to a state where one can actually reflect in great clarity and not being disturbed by the passions and all the crazy stuff that goes on and everybody gets sucked into mm-hmm. and their life just floats by and they reach the end of it, you know, death. And it was like, what the hell was that all for? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so there's this massive amount of distraction that occurs, which becomes more relevant today with uh, smartphones and social media and uh, the destruction. Uh, tell me about it. Yeah, that's having on everybody. Guilty. So, and, Guilty. And then another, another limb was called dharana. Dharana was a practice of trying to bring the mi- mind into a very clear, um, focus so it could be um, immersed in that which is completely spiritual 
And then there was the process of, of dhyana, which meant meditation. Mm-hmm. Meditation was always not just a process of trying to calm or quiet and or still the mind. That was all considered pre-meditation. Mm-hmm. The actual process of meditation was to become deeply absorbed in that which is transcendental. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. by being totally immersed in transcendence, then one's heart and mind becomes purified and spiritual realization begins to, to take place. And that leads to a state that was called samadhi, um, which sometimes people translate as trance, but it's trance is not really good because that means different things to different people. But it means a state of being absolutely fully fixed in a transcendental experience. And one does not have to sit quietly to do that. When a person attains a certain level of self-realization and God-realization, they may appear to be like anybody else in this world to others, but they may be constantly, deeply steeped in in a wonderful trend experience that's really interesting because it to me i'm interested a lot in the the christian contemplative tradition and the saints and mystics throughout like like the catholic tradition and a lot of that sounds very similar to the way that um that catholics might describe contemplation um the final stage of um of meditation where you're, you you have purgation where you're getting rid of all of the surface attachments and uh, things that are distracting you. And then um, you are meditating on God. And then you reach this point where what you're meditating on and you are no longer separate things, but they're one thing where they're in union. And it sounds like that's very similar to what you're talking about. Yeah, I think that there's a, a, a good deal of, of similarity between the older traditions of the early church, which are now pretty much categorized as, as within the Catholic tradition. But back then, it wasn't really so much like that. It was, you know, viewed uh, a little bit more broadly. Um, I also do find that there are mystics within the ancient or the old um, Christian tradition and Catholic tradition whom are not actually very well understood today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it, it's very obvious to me that a lot of them were going through things that are frequently discussed in, in Vedic texts mm-hmm. in terms of spiritual conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the things that was really um, kind of really w- wonderful experience for me was that <clears throat> in meeting my spiritual teachers and hearing them speak about something that I was I had grown up with, like Christianity and Jesus Christ, the way in which they spoke about things was incredibly profound. And it was unlike anything I'd ever heard before. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you an example. Um, uh, in my 
experience when I ask Christian audiences um, what is the principle or the primary teaching of Lord Jesus Christ. And in my experience, less than half the people will get it right, which is pretty scary. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, the usual go-to is to love thy neighbor or thy brother as thyself. Mm-hmm. Whereas in reality, that was stated to be uh, a second commandment, mm-hmm. which was like unto the first, but not the first. Mm-hmm. And so when we when we look at that, you know what, and and the question that was put to him, of course, in in at least in in one verse, the way it was put to him was what was the greatest um, commandments or whatever in the ancient teachings. I can't remember it verbatim or anything. And so his his reference was not something new, mm-hmm. but something from ancient times. And and then when you hear it in this context, you know, to, to love the Lord thy God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul or being, it's like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> I mean, really, what does that mean? Yeah. What is the state or condition of love that is so overwhelming that one's whole heart, their whole mind, everything is lost in that experience. Mm-hmm. What is that? How is that experienced? Are there stages of experience here? How does it manifest to a person and how does it manifest in, in their life? Do you know anybody that's attained it? What is the actual process? Right. What is, does it look is like? There a, is there a process? And so, you know, when I when I started hearing these kind of things, and and deeper um, explanations of this condition of of love, it just it actually completely blew my mind because it was, you know, I'm I'm now hearing and and being encouraged to look at something in a very profound way, not just on the basis of some superficial or, or, or external acceptance, but something very, very deep and uh, very amazing. And and there was some very early discussion in, in the early years of the church where a distinction was drawn between salvation and love, how salvation is fundamentally a selfish desire, not bad, not bad, but selfish. Mm. In in that in that mentality, one recognizes some higher being or power or you know God, and however you're going to conceive or understand Him, and it's like, please save me. Mm-hmm. In that equation, I am at the center of things. And this greater being or personality or spiritual energy is now going to, I'm engaging in my service to do something for me. Mm-hmm. Whereas the condition of profound spiritual love, there is no desire or expectation of anything for oneself. One simply desires to become pleasing to the actual object of my love. Mm-hmm. 
And when I when I heard that, that was just like, whoa, this is so far away from anything that I had ever been exposed to. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do often feel very sad that the Christian tradition offers something that is that is so extremely um, and wonderfully spiritually complete, but it is something that a lot of people have no connection with. Yeah. They don't, it's not something that they're hearing or not something that is sort of like part. And so when you refer to the older contemplative, you know, um, traditions of, the, of, of, the, of early Christianity, I think people were far more sort of like focused and, and aspiring and desiring to, to, for that experience. And um, it's unfortunate when people become distracted where, you know, their connection with God, their connection with some higher or more important spiritual thing is, is focused up upon, you know, what that dude can do for me. Right. <laughs> you know, g- making my life wonderful here. Mm-hmm. Taking care of my family, giving me the money, giving me the goodies, paying you know? the bills, paying the bills, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And that's just like that's like approaching a, a mega billionaire and asking him for a box of chocolates. Right. You know, it's it's not cool. Yeah, it's a good it's, way to describe uh, it. It's, it's very unfortunate. So it sounds like to me that. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the Christian tradition as it relates to perhaps your background, does it have any similarities or potential similarities to things like like devotional type yoga, like bhakti? Absolutely. There is, there is um, really, okay, Self, self-realization means that I must come to answer three and experience the answer to three questions related to what is my essence, what is my position, and what is my function. My essence means basically what am I made of? What is this? I mean, the idea, I don't like using the word soul very much because in in many religious traditions, that's a word that is actually ill-defined. Mm-hmm. Like when people say, I have a soul or my soul, my question to them would be, well, what exactly is this soul? And who are you that's possessing it? Mm-hmm. And that immediately just, boof, you know, people's heads explode at that point because it's like, you know, what, what does that mean? And I think people often develop an under, an idea. It's kind of like the, the what do you call it? Uh, uh, what's that ad? energizer you know the energizer bunny and you you put the energizer battery in it and the bunny can move and Mm -hmm. walk and forever and ever you know and as soon as you take the battery out 
the bunny kind of falls over and has become useless. Mm -hmm. But you look at the battery and it's kind of like, what the hell is that? That's pretty useless also. Right. And the idea then that if I join them together, I've got something complete and whole. And from the Vedic perspective, that's really a, a really wrong understanding. You know, they, they teach the difference between a, a dead body and a live body is first and foremost a person. That the soul or the spiritual being is first and foremost a person. It's not that the body makes you a person. As soon as you leave the body, there's no personhood to it, mm -hmm. and it actually becomes unattractive. So trying to understand or, or developing a realization of, of who I am, I must understand that I'm, I'm spiritual in essence. I'm not, not material. Mm -hmm. In relation to where do I fit in relation to the, the material energy, other living beings, is there a higher being? than myself and where do I fit in relation to those things and of course it, it boils down to a very simple truth that I, I am not supreme I am actually very small mm -hmm. and I am dependent that is part of my eternal nature and then the third third question on you know is the question of so what is my natural function if the spiritual being is stripped of their gross and subtle coverings and are standing there in their pure and essential nature, what is the natural expression of the soul itself? Here I'm using the word soul again. Mm -hmm. what, is the, what is the natural expression of the soul itself? And the outpouring of the soul, it, the desire is to love and to be loved. That these are not material things arising from the body or mind. They're actually deeper part of our eternal spiritual nature. So when we when we consider that, then the traditions of of bhakti, uh, the devotional traditions, were not seen to be an attempt to express emotion or something of the body and mind but to actually align what is my eternal nature mm -hmm. and to manifest that eternal nature. So there are some yoga traditions where they don't have any focus at all on, on a personal feature of God or the personality of Godhead. They are more connected to an impersonal but vast spiritual energy like an ocean of light in in the deeper vedic traditions that was considered already perfect understanding but not as perfect as it can get <laughs> <laughs> only half perfect yeah, yeah well you know they they talk in terms of um you know, degree degrees of perfection. Mm -hmm. And so it is in, in the full realization of the self, of who I am, that I actually begin to experience the reality of my need for to love and to be loved and the, the nature of the living being to serve. 
I mean, we all we all become happy when we do good. Mm-hmm. If we do good for others, if we offer some service, whether it's to someone that I mean, when if we feel that we have, you know, an affection or love for someone, we seek to please them. Yeah, it's that's automatic. It it's the taking and the selfish taking nature that really isolates us and causes us tremendous suffering actually and the giving nature is one that one instantly experiences joy with it mm-hmm. when you do something good for others especially something unexpected to go out of your way just even for a moment to help somebody who's in difficulty there is a an instant experience of of joyfulness and happiness within the heart Mm -hmm. and the reason we experience that is because it is connected to our deeper inner spiritual nature Mm -hmm. so the processes of 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 meditation that were practiced in the vedic tradition were um utilized by people always for transcendental purpose and experience but according to the way in which they chose to relate to some higher spiritual truth um it created opportunities for more limited or more profound spiritual experiences Mm -hmm. the highest was considered to attain you know perfect love for god yeah and we something you said a minute ago in some parts of the vedas that they they stress the importance of um that transcendental ideal and it reminded me that there's there's a popular author now that's um been very influential in in my uh, growth and in many others by the name of Richard Rohr. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he just recently wrote a book called uh, The Universal Christ. And it's basically an effort and uh, outline of the fact that our idea of God is very small and that that idea must be expounded upon. And in it, he kind of separates the aspects of um, the man, uh, Jesus, and the the embodiment that he was as the Christ. And so in circles that I frequent, those who have gone through this deconstruction of their faith tend to shed that idea of a personal God such as uh, Jesus in favor of this more, like you said, universal and impersonal kind of force. And and I think there's there's some good that can come of that. But I also can see how that might be throwing the baby out with the bathwater because like you were saying, if you lose that personal imminent connection on the other side of the transcendent, then it kind it's kind of hard to be transformed into that transcendent force if there's no imminent uh reflection for you to to have yourself change into. Yeah, you, you know, um, like I, I, when I first was exposed to the idea of this larger impersonal feature of a higher truth, I, I sort of went there big time um, because partly in my upbringing, I felt that what I was presented, 
in terms of a personal feature of God was actually often wrong and or very limited. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what happens is that when people then get exposed to something that seems to be bigger, they want to really, well, they can really embrace it. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain, um, and I say this not in a demeaning way, there's a certain childishness in doing that. And it's because my experience is so limited. And now I encounter something that's vaster. And my thing is, okay, that's mm-hmm. it. That's everything. Mm-hmm. Without, without realizing that there may also be something beyond that. Mm-hmm. Like in, in, in Vedic teachings, they speak about, in, in terms of the personal aspect of God, that there are two fundamental categories of relationship that the living beings can have. And that the vast majority of living beings who have a relationship with a personal feature of God, there is this ever-present awareness of Mm -hmm. majesty, Mm -hmm. power, which has a limiting effect on the need for love. That for those who desired to experience this love and fullness, they had to come to a position where they don't see God as God. They see him as the highest Mm -hmm. object of love, Mm -hmm. the most intimate friend, where, where... the perfection of spiritual relationship is experienced in an utterly ecstatic and overwhelming way that's not like anything that that a person could ever you know connect to in of mm-hmm. this world mm-hmm. so you know more often than not especially in the christian and abrahamic traditions there is this fearfulness of God as a judge and a, you know, somebody that you just don't want to right. piss off. Or, <laughs> you're in really, yeah. really big trouble. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse my language. Um, but that that is a, a very limited way of um, understanding the personal aspect of Godhead, mm-hmm. the personality of Godhead. And it may be helpful for people that have little or no control over their senses and their ability to stay on a path that's in their interest and is best for society. People that, you know, have come to be able to self-regulate and to act with far more focus and responsibility in their life. Um, this is just really unappealing to sort of try to relate to, you know, this figure mm-hmm. of, of awe and power mm-hmm. and vengeance and anger and stuff. And so in the Vedic tradition, there was, there was nothing like that. It was... Um, 
one of profound and transcendent sweetness, mm -hmm. you know, of, of great love, of, of a swooning and being lost in an ocean of, of transcendental yeah, that love. reminds me a lot of like the Sufi tradition and how they, they express like um, just very ecstatic devotion and um, like the poetry of Rumi calling the Lord the Beloved and calling himself the Beloved and getting caught up in, in that swooning kind of relationship. Actually, the Sufi tradition um, has been very much influenced by their early entrance into India, mm -hmm. where different waves of, of Muslims had come to invade and dominate India. And you'll see that the Sunni traditions are really, they don't like the Sufis. And they say that it is kind of like, you know, the Muslim religion being contaminated by what's called Vaishnavism, mm. which is the focus in the Vedic tradition on, on you know, profound devotion. Historically, whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. But much of what is spoken of is very much in the vein of of the Vedic traditions of of um, devotion. What is ahimsa and? What value does it have in, in spiritual practice? Uh, it's, it's enormously important. Ahimsa refers to non-violence. Non and that non-violence is um, not just in relation to causing physical harm. Mm -hmm. It can be in relation to causing mental harm. To, which of course can manifest in so many so many different ways. Um, even for instance, the promotion of an ideology of hedonism would be considered violence, mm -hmm. because what you're doing is, I mean, you, you you look at the principle of advertising. Advertising they've they've accepted, and I mean the the foundational things and like. 50s and 60s was this recognition that everybody's fundamentally empty and what they do is promise you the thing that will fill up the emptiness mm -hmm. by associating images and ideas and people going through experiences with products they're basically tell, selling you that which will fill you up the thing that you are looking for mm -hmm. That would be considered an incredibly violent thing to do from the perspective of, of the Vedas and, and yoga, because what you're doing is you're perpetuating the suffering of the living beings by having them chase down, you know, engage in material consumption with the idea that I will find happiness there. Mm -hmm. One of the really cool things about Vedic teaching is they make a very clear distinction between um, sensual pleasure or pleasurable experiences and happiness. 
that happiness is something eternal. Mm-hmm. Whereas pleasurable experience by nature has a beginning and it has an end. And in its pursuit, there will be consequence. And it can never fulfill the deeper desire that we have for happiness. So a person can be in a situation where they're just, you know, constantly engaged in stimulating the senses, you know, working themselves into a frenzy almost and having all kinds of just amazing experiences and yet be suicidal. Mm. You know, that's a clear demonstration of the fact that the these experiences that are material in nature and temporary, while they may be pleasurable, they do not provide ever any lasting happiness and in fact can create a deep sense of uneasiness and unhappiness. Yeah, so how do you draw the line between, say, ecstatic devotional experience and the type of experience that you that you say will kind of leave you empty like what's the what's the difference i know here in the us it's kind of a trend to um for for churches that that are christian to have these explosive all out hours long worship sessions where and they they spend inordinate amounts of money on the equipment and the lights and the and it's it's all expressed as kind of like a devotional worship for for God. And I think that there's good in that, but a lot of times what I see is that it's kind of viewed as God is only in that expression and only in that worship experience. And then it's kind of like an emotional high. And then the people leave and it's kind of a, a drop off. Back to normal life. Yeah. And so, so what's the difference between authentic? Yeah. I, I, you know, you should know a tree by its fruit. Mm. I think well known saying is, and it, it is possible to become caught up in an emotional experience that is somehow pointing towards a deeper spiritual reality mm-hmm. that we actually desire, but that experience itself may not be wholly spiritual. Mm-hmm. It can be very much, um, you know, still contaminated with material conception. If you engage in spiritual practice that transforms you and turns your heart from a lover of mammon to a lover of God, that is a genuine spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. But if I go through something that gets me hyped and, and I get excited and I may even cry and you know be overwhelmed, what it, it's pointing towards something, but it may not really be connected in you know in a pure way with that and if i come away from that and i'm not transformed i'm still making the same bad choices in my life i'm still being drawn to you know temporary material happiness in 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 a search for something more fulfilling and deeper then i'm i'm not growing and i'm not changing mm-hmm. and that would should clearly indicate 
that that in and of itself was not purely spiritual. Yeah. So, and I, I say that with some reservation because it's quite possible for a person who has materialistic motive or who's very, you know, self-centered to come in contact with something that is purely spiritual and go away from it untransformed. You know, there is this need and element for me to be able to be open, to open my heart and to receive and embrace things in a mood of deep humility, mm-hmm. you know, which is actually something that's really, really important, the cultivation of, of humility in terms of our, uh, our spiritual growth. So, you know, the, the meditative processes, it's kind of interesting because in one of the uh, well-known books some people may have heard of, the Bhagavad Gita, it talks about um, three types of happiness. And one of them is is more spiritual and one of them is just like crass, you know, material experience. And they describe it as that which in the beginning may taste like nectar mm. and at the end maybe like poison mm-hmm. and is born of contact of the senses with the objects of the senses. You know, this was described as fundamentally what so-called material happiness is. Mm-hmm. It has that high in the beginning and, and it just degrades over time and becomes even incredibly unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, an example could be, you know, People associate, and when I was talking about sensual pleasure, if I ask somebody, what's your favorite food? And they say ice cream or just, just for example, or pizza. Okay, let's lock them in a room mm. and feed nothing but their favorite food for the next month. <laughs> three, week, three days into it, they're already going crazy. Oh, yeah. What, what was divine has now become like torture. Right. Um, We can do this with music. You know, oh, I really love that. It just gives me such a high. I love that piece of music. Okay, let's put you in a chair and duct tape to you there and put headphones on. And that's the only thing that you're going to hear nonstop for the next week. That'd be torture. And the fact that something can appear to be so sweet in the beginning and become so torturous or unpleasant as uh, over time indicates that it's non-spiritual and when they speak about spiritual happiness they say that in the beginning some of the practices and the activities may even seem to be unpleasant or even like poison in the beginning Mm. but which at the end becomes like nectar Mm -hmm. you know and and so it's it's just an idea that we should sort of like keep in the back of our mind in terms of these things that you're speaking of. You know, it, it is the result of my exposure to this leading me to a path of profound spiritual experience and happiness. Is it changing the way I look at the world and I look at others? Is it changing the way I look at myself? Is my life going through major change because of this? So, you know, these are some of the things that need to be considered. So do you think that the experiential dimension of faith is um, essential 
like a like a mystical experience absolutely essential yeah i mean if 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 there was not an experiential component that it's kind of like what i'm just stuck in this void you know kind of like a no man's land right well you know the reality is that the spiritual experience should be incredibly practical and it should be a wonderful growing you know experience for most of us it's going to be a very gradual thing mm-hmm. you know that that over time as we follow in the footsteps of previous saintly teachers and personalities and we we walk that walk we take that journey and we take on the things that we need to take on and we become prepared to discard that which is not only unhelpful but maybe keeping us mm-hmm. you know from growing spiritually and from having these type of experience so you know it's all about being experiential yeah totally well what is your favorite practice or, or method of experience um amongst the the meditations that i do i find the one that's most um enjoyable for me where i have sometimes you know wonderful revelation and experience is the process of what's called kirtan mm-hmm. kirtan is a singing meditation where it's focused primarily on on spiritual sound transcendental sound that transcendental sound is is frequently referred to as as names of god and when one is able to receive these from an empowered source and then engage in in immersing oneself in them there will be a purification of the heart and the mind and a gradual dawning of of a wonderful spiritual experience hmm. one can experience the highest levels of of self-realization and god realization through these is that what method you're going to be leading us in today? Partially. What I was going to do today is just take people through a little bit of, of basic um, breath and breathing to to become centered and focused and relaxed, and then to incorporate this spiritual sound. And we're using a what it's called mantra with this sacred sound or spiritual sound and uh, the mantra that we're using is the sound goranga which literally translated into english would be something like the golden lord mm-hmm. but it's it, it's infinitely more profound than that and um so we do a little bit of the breath the breathing with the saying of this mantra and allowing it to vibrate feeling it through our body and then transitioning into into a singing component um it's quite meditative and sort of like you know it's not very loud or anything mm-hmm. um and i think what it does is anybody that wants to uh who's open to trying it that they will have a very nice experience and if they're interested in in other forms of that meditation and things um you know we can share information on our website or youtube channel 
where people can sort of connect with that. Yeah, that sounds that sounds awesome. I'm actually looking really forward to to doing that myself. So where can people go to keep up with you and keep up with your work? So um, I, I do have a a um, YouTube um, channel. Well, probably the easiest one to get started would be on. I've got a website. Um, it's it's Acharya Das A C H A R Y A Acharya Das D A S. Um, that that word Acharya means uh, a great spiritual teacher who teaches by personal example, and the word Das means a servant. So I'm been given this name as a servant of the previous saintly teachers who taught by their example. So um, that's acharyadas.com. Um, I do have a YouTube channel. If you search for Acharya Das um, on YouTube, you'll see it has pretty much the same stuff and also um, on Facebook. And there's probably about 150 or something videos up there. Um, some of them have to do with um, contemporary sort of topics and subjects, uh, which sort of help guide us towards how to live a more spiritual life. But there are guided meditations on there. There are some meditation sessions that if people want to try it, they can plug into and um, come to learn more about it and, and try the experience for themselves. Oh, great. That'll be a great resource for, for our listeners. Absolutely. Acharya, I'm so glad that we finally got to talk. It's wonderful to have someone on to, to give us a glimpse into a different wisdom tradition than we're used to. And thank you for sharing your time with us today. Yeah, my great pleasure. And thank you very much for reaching out. It's, um, it's very nice what you're doing. And um, of course, I always feel very inclined to support and help anybody on this type of journey that's also trying to help others. So I thank you for that. Listeners, tune in to the next episode to hear a guided meditation by Acharya Das. <laughs> <laughs>